0: This is Fred Venturini and you're listening to The Book Podcast, which is way better than being on fire.
1: Welcome to Book, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Sneddon.
0: Nam Rob Olson. Uh, the book we're reviewing tonight is Inferno by Dan Brown. <laughs>
1: of... you, you, you forgot again, didn't you? No. What? No, no. Oh, you paused. You were like, the book we're reading is... This
0: is my dramatic pause. Are we okay, starting okay, over? I or am I just no, kind of... no, no, no. Absolutely. Just calm down. Just calm down. All right. So <laughs> the book we are reviewing tonight is Inferno by Dan Brown. I was giving it dramatic effect because uh, it's such a big book. It's a rather, little bit.
1: <laughs> rather dramatic book
0: little bit about dan brown before we get into it he is the if you don't know uh number one new york times best-selling author of the da vinci code and previously digital fortress deception point and angels and demons he's a graduate of amherst college and phillips exeter academy where he spent time as an english teacher before turning his efforts fully to writing he lives in new england with his wife there's no period at the end of that sentence so i have to imagine that there's more to his life than that
1: um, that was probably just poor copying and pasting on my part. That is the entirety of his bio. How cool is that?
0: Yeah, pretty good. I mean, like, well, <clears throat> uh, I don't know, dude. Once you've written the Da Vinci Code and sold, like, you know, tens of millions of copies, you don't have to do anything else.
1: I'm pretty sure that that's the second best-selling book of all
0: time. You know, after the Bible? Yes, after the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: But yeah, you're right. It should just be Dan Brown wrote the Da Vinci Code.
0: Mic drop. That's it, pretty much. Like, he's one of the few people that could actually write the words mic drop in his bio, and it would be justified. Yeah, yeah.
1: All right. So, the book uh, (laughs) from this is torn directly from Amazon.com. In the heart of Italy, Harvard professor of symbology Robert Langdon is drawn into a harrowing world centered on one of history's most enduring and mysterious literary masterpieces. Dante's Inferno. Against this backdrop, Langdon battles a chilling adversary and grapples with an ingenious riddle that pulls him into a landscape of classic art, secret passageways, and futuristic science. Drawing from Dante's dark epic poem, Langdon races to find answers and decide whom to trust before the world is irrevocably altered.
0: Can I, all right, I want to get right into a little analysis of this, uh, the synopsis. Secret passageways. All right, so that seems like it's an important part of the book, right? Because it's yeah, mentioned yeah. in the synopsis. Mm-hmm. I I can't think of. I mean, I know there were a couple secret passageways in the book, but it was like like a back exit to a couple buildings, right? Was there any like major secret passageway that I'm like really forgetting?
1: No, and I think you're right. None of them. Well, okay, so none of them were secret passageways anymore. I think they all like served purposes way back when. But, yeah, now we're like kind of backdoor exits.
0: Or was it that big-ass tunnel?
1: No. 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 No, there was, well, I don't know what you're There was when they were in that, uh, that big park.
0: Yeah, right, and there was the tunnel that took them mm-hmm. over the river to the yeah. other museum.
1: Then they were in another museum where they had to look behind the map of something, and that's right. how they escaped. And I think there was a third one. But, yeah, basically they
0: weren't. There was one that was just behind a curtain, and it was a stairway that went out to like the road or something. Yeah, yeah. that's what—that's the one I imagine when you were reading that. It was like, yeah, that's a
1: huge part of the book. And well, and the funny thing about it too is that while I was reading that, the secret passageways didn't strike me like it struck you. But what struck me that way was the futuristic
0: science. Uh, yeah. I can see why that so, would I mean, be a little. We might
1: we is. might be able to talk about that a little bit. We're going to try to keep this episode relatively spoiler free, as uh, millions of people will read this book. Um, we were able to get to it uh, pretty quickly. We actually could have had this review up on on um, last Wednesday, the day after it came up. If I had, I have known that Rob was just going to spend twenty straight hours reading it, I would have picked up the pace a little
0: bit. Oh man, yeah.
1: To tell people about your your marathon reading session.
0: <laughs> I mean, it was basically. I read as much as I could in one day, which was about I want to say ten hours straight. I got through about eighty percent, yeah, Yeah. and then the next day I read for like an hour and got the rest of it done. Yeah. So, um,
1: Robert Langdon, book number four. Yeah. This book starts out a little differently than uh, than the previous three books, at least from from recollection. I've read all four of the Langdon books. Um, with Robert Langdon wakes up with amnesia in a hospital and basically has no
0: idea, um, what the previous 48 hours of his, uh, of his life entail. Well, it starts out, starts out with like him, uh, in hell talking to a woman, um, you know, across a giant sea of bodies. And, uh, it turns out that that's a dream he's having that he wakes up from in the hospital, as Livia said. So it starts out really confusing because you're like, I mean, Dan Brown really likes to push the envelope of, like, you know, believability, but I don't think he's going to put Robert Langdon in, like, a literal hell. So, like, it was a little disorienting, but, yeah, then he wakes up in a hospital uh, with some uh, amnesia, yeah.
1: Yeah, Robert Langdon in literal hell. Um, So basically what happens is uh, through the beginning 40% of the book we try to kind of catch up with what's actually going on and we see a a good portion of this through Robert Langdon's eyes as as he starts to um, follow the mystery of uh, Dante's Inferno and when I say that he finds uh, uh, some clues that uh, lead him to, to believe that there's something going on based on Dante's Inferno
0: yep so the bulk of the book really hinges on the idea that Langdon has amnesia so he's not really sure what happened in the last 48 hours. Uh, All he knows is that when he wakes up, uh, immediately he is uh, attacked and needs to escape. And in the process of running away, um, little things start to pop up. He discovers something on him that he didn't know he had. That leads to, that's basically the first piece in a puzzle. And um, like anybody would, he believes that by following this kind of breadcrumb trail of of things he's getting as he un- unravels this puzzle, he'll figure out, you know, what the hell's going on and why and things like that.
1: Only in the world of books does that ever work out that
0: way. I know every time I wake up and don't remember something, no breadcrumbs, no trails, no uh super sexy doctor in the hospital in another country trying to uh make me feel better.
1: Was she super sexy? Did we ever oh, decide she was super Jude. sexy?
0: Uh, allow me to read you a quote oh please do all right so tall and lissome dr brooks moved with an assertive gait of an athlete even in shapeless scrubs she had a willowy elegance about her despite the absence of any makeup that langdon could see her complexion appeared unusually smooth the only blemish a tiny beauty mark just above her lips her eyes though a gentle brown seemed unusually penetrating as if they had witnessed a profundity of experience rarely encountered by a person her age. That yeah. is, Maybe. that's like writer speak for she's a hottie.
1: That's what I was gonna say. It sounds like she's a hottie. Um, I feel like I'm gonna have to be the guy that defends Dan Brown through this whole <laughs> through this whole episode.
0: Um. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> yeah.
1: The thing with Dan Brown stories is that there's always, you know, some some reveals along the way and usually a, a pretty big reveal. The one thing that um differs about this book that was kind of bugging me through the course of, of
0: reading it is uh it is a little different from the previous three. Rob, did you read all pre all three of the other ones? Angels and Demons and Da Vinci Code. Yes, I did not read what's it called? The Last Symbol. The Lost Symbol. Lost, yeah, it's so
1: yeah. So the lo- so this is the one the first one where what he's investigating even though he's using you know clues that point to ancient you know or, or very old art relics and you know paintings and buildings and history it's the only one that doesn't deal with an ancient mystery if you follow what i'm saying what's happening is happening now but this this evil super villain has has planted these clues or used clue or used symbols mm, okay do you follow? What I'm saying he's used symbols to kind of. It, it, it's like the um. It's like that scene in in, in every you know action movie where the action hero is about to be killed, but the the evil genius has to reveal his entire plan to yeah, him. Yeah. This time he's not solving an ancient. Myth. So in the Da Vinci Code, he's using all of these old clues to basically prove that that, that Jesus Christ had a son. I hope right. I'm not spoiling the Da Vinci Code for anybody. <laughs> you know <laughs> in, in angels and demons it was a, a mystery rooted you know in, in the vatican that you know was hundreds and hundreds of years old and the the lost symbol was the freemasons and however far back they go this is the first book where the mystery is manufactured by another character and isn't something that
0: already is is an existing it's not an ages old secret it's something exactly. that like yeah yeah yes
1: so it was a little weird i don't know if he's just run out of ideas like for that type of of thing or if he just thought he'd take it in a different direction and maybe throughout the course of this review and our wrap up we can kind of talk about how we felt about story versus
0: um, concept. It's funny that you say that too because uh, it, it struck me even in the synopsis when it says um, Robert Langdon is drawn into a harrowing world centered on one of history's most enduring and mysterious literary masterpieces so it almost makes you think that the mystery is somehow within Inferno and mm-hmm. um, uh, and it's, and it's not. Um, so, spoiler, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is markedly different, I think, mm-hmm. uh, because it's not an ages-old um, thing that, that Langdon discovers and or uncovers, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's something that, yes, yeah, is, is manufactured in the present day. So, like, the mystery is definitely not... History is not the mystery, it's the science, which, yeah, it's kind of a juxtaposition from the other stories. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I don't feel that that's really spoilery because the first clue that he finds is a reworked painting, right? That that he pretty quickly notices it has been, you know, the equivalent of photoshopped to <laughs> to mean something different. Yep. So I, I don't think that we're giving anything away by saying that, and you know, I don't know if there actually are mysteries in, in Dante's Inferno. We definitely learn a lot about Dante, and and as always, in in my opinion. Um, Dan Brown does a very very good job of making things I wouldn't have found interesting and never read a you know a paper or an essay on nonfiction book chapter in a book about it. Actually, you know, found some of the stuff about Dante really interesting, and that's one of the things I've always felt he's done really well is take a subject that maybe wouldn't be interesting and and make you care about it throughout the course of his sometimes
0: um, kind
1: of weekly put together story.
0: All right, so as is, I actually have. A bulleted list of elements of a Dan Brown, Robert Langdon series novel, which I won't go through. But um, as far as characters go, you do have some of the typical or to be expected types of characters in a Dan Brown, uh, Robert Langdon novel. I say that because I didn't read his two non-Robert Langdon books. Um, what are they? Uh, Digital Fortress and Deception Point. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if it's a little bit of a different formula for those uh, but you have, like I was describing before, um, the hottie that there's always from what I understand, like from the books I've read, the female kind of hot chick that ends up being his partner throughout the book. And in this one, it's, uh, Sienna Brooks is her name. Um, not going too much into her overall character, but in the beginning of the book, uh, she she's with the doctor in the hospital, and so when he's attacked, they escape together. And um, as he's uh, at her apartment when they're trying to you know kind of figure out their next move, he sees some information about her. discovers she's like profoundly you know intelligent and and everything, and on top of being how we described her earlier. Um, so that's his partner in crime, quote unquote, for the majority of the story. Yeah, I liked
1: your list and I I, I agree with your list of elements of Dan <laughs> Brown story. I really do. And and I I I enjoy the Dan Brown books by and large. They have their issues that we're going to start talking about probably right about now. Um you mentioned some of the characters. Langdon's character or characters aren't very memorable and in many ways um even in his other books and as I'm, you know, Struggling to recall books I read, you know, four, five, six, ten years ago, um, they're always very kind of caricature-y Yeah, cookie you know, cutter. Way, yeah, I mean, Langdon's the professor with the tweed jacket, you know. And mm-hmm. in this book, there's or early on, and again, I spoil, but this kind of unbelievable assassin character who is after Langdon. Um, you know, she shows up at the hospital like right after he wakes up and and tries to kill him and. She's this tall blonde wearing all leather and has, like, spiky blonde hair. Like, the world's worst disguised assassin. Like, the person who right. stand out most in a crowd is the assassin. And then later on, there's a character who is the curator for something. And he's, like, the big, really portly guy. Like, they all look exactly like you would think. <laughs> like, what's the most... You know, do you follow i on something? Just very... Like, if I had to imagine, like, ridiculous assassin... I'd be like, yeah, blonde woman in leather. You know, well what does the museum curator look like? Well, he's a big, really, really portly guy. You know, I mean it just yeah. seems like there there's another guy who shows up really early in the book that's kinda of hanging out on this yacht. Did you picture him as like the admiral on every submarine you've movie you've ever seen? Because that's how I saw him. Yeah. Like the
0: beard. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean that's you know The Provost is what he call he's called. Yes. Um much like in Da Vinci Code there is the teacher who's like a secret guy who has no name and just kind of like a moniker
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah yeah
1: but but you know this guy sold more more copies of a book in one day <laughs> than you know collectively everybody we've had on the
0: show in their True. lives yeah so can, can we go through my list since we started oh, talking yeah, about oh yeah actually it? yeah sure all right so my list of elements and these are not necessarily in any kind of given like order just things as i, I wrote as i thought out Obviously, Robert Langdon needs to show up in a Dan Brown, Robert Langdon series novel. There's got to be somebody who needs a symbologist immediately and has access to their own private airplane. Europe has to be involved somehow. Not the band, not the uh, final <laughs> countdown. Um, At least we have our theme music although, for this yeah, episode. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the continent of Europe is what I meant, of course. Um, an evil conspiracy uh, a hot, smart chick who's usually a scientist for Langdon to team up with who may eventually betray him. Uh, no spoilers there. That was just a generalization. Many, many museum curators. And this is something that Livius pointed out. Um, <laughs> it's like not like you can't swing a dead cat in Europe without hitting a museum curator who is very <laughs> excited to see Robert Langdon. Yeah. Uh <laughs> Um, science, religion, and probably politics, some sort of mix of those three elements. There has to be a deceptive flashback, some sort of memory loss, or a weird story timeline that kind of confuses you as to what really is going on. Um, And in the end, Robert Langdon has to say goodbye to the woman who he's been accompanying the entire book. Uh, He has to be at some point thankful he still has his tweed jacket, or something about his clothing, and he has to think about his Mickey Mouse watch. Did I miss
1: anything? Yeah, no, no, I think that's that's pretty much it. Um, I, I guess I could add to that list. <laughs> Throughout the course of every one of the books, so after Angels and Demons, and I, I read Angels and Demons long before, well, not long, months before The Da Vinci Code came out and became a huge success, and I, I liked Angels and Demons, and the reasons I liked it were um, the, the history, the weird history uh, of the Vatican and, and the the lineage of popes and then kind of all this cool stuff about science that you know the average person probably doesn't know but with that book going forward langdon is constantly surprised that he's in these really dangerous situations and you would think you would think that by the fourth book if someone's like shooting at him or chasing him or you know he's got to jump from a you know 10th story window you know holding on to some uh i don't know dental floss that he'd just be like this is normal this is what (laughs) yep this is what happens to me he's basically the indiana jones of art people so it it just it's it's surprising to me that i mean i guess i understand why dan brown doesn't feel the need and and probably rightfully so he probably doesn't want to feel he's losing anybody who's picking this up for the first time by referencing other robert langdon stories but Langdon
0: should kind of be a little bit accustomed to the weird goings on in his life. Right. Yeah. Over time, yeah, he will have acclimated to the insanity uh, of. Um, and you know what? Here's the other thing, too. And I know this is a bit of a digression, but like all the other symbologists that exist in the world have to be pissed because, like, I guarantee there's never been a situation where they've saved the world. And that's what I said about Indiana Jones, you know, archaeologists probably don't lead
2: the most
1: adventurous <laughs> lives either, but, and in yeah. some ways I can't imagine that a little bit of Robert Langdon isn't based on, on old oh, sure. Indy. Yeah, for sure. So. Yeah. So that's um, one of the things, and that's the problem with, with, with Dan Brown is that there's, there's really a lot to like, in my opinion, and then there's a lot to just not like.
0: Um, Yeah. I think that's pretty universal too. and and the the problem, I guess the unfortunate thing is that um, likers of of literature are mm. quick to dis uh, uh, are quick to dismiss the book because of the overall shortcomings of Dan Brown. Um, when I mean, realistically, if you look at his books as just like, is it fun to read? Um, answer is probably yes. I don't want to go a little step further further than that, though.
1: He, now he's a um, you know multi millionaire, whatever, and and he's got you know two three years to write a book, and he might have a research team. I don't know, but then go back to the research that goes into his book. So everything that's in a Dan Brown book is basically fact. So when he talks about a little bit of science, that's based on some sort of fact. All of these paintings and statues and secret passageways we've talked about are researched and they exist. This is you know kind of the promise he makes at the beginning of each of his novels. I mean, think about how intricate a puzzle he can put together using factual information. So, I mean, the amount of work that goes into it, and like I said, okay, if now he's doing it, and you know, I'm sure when he was writing Angels and Demons, which had a lot of the same things going for it, I'm sure he was doing this after getting off his, like, teaching gig at the junior college or wherever he was working, you know? So, I mean, it's not like he he could afford a team of researchers and stuff. He puts together he could have written the same type of book and made up a bunch of crap, and he doesn't. He uses factual information, and it makes some sort of sense in the end that all, you know, these things that all point to one another.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not half-assed. It's not, it's not over-promising and under-delivering like some other um, action-slash-history books that we've read and reviewed in the past. Um, I'll give you that. When he, The way he blends history and... Um, you know, culture and art into the books is is very well done. And actually, is it time to go into the to the observation, the big the big reveal?
1: Yeah, I think I should get. Swear. I'm going to
0: get some sort of a Nobel Prize for for this. This
1: is pretty goddamn genius, dude. I got um, <laughs> to tell you, there's been a few times on this podcast I've been this impressed with you.
0: <laughs> Wait a minute, <laughs> sounds more like an insult than anything. <laughs> uh, so I was talking to Livius about this uh, the book yesterday because there's, we wanted to get our spoiler talk out before. Uh, We recorded the episode and one of the things that became clear to me through the course of reading this book that I hadn't really had really the care to think about as I read previous books because it was before, you know, we had to look at stories from a more analytical perspective is that there's basically two elements to the way that Dan Brown writes. There is the, what we were just talking about, what he does very well. Which is his writing of fact, his historical slash science. Uh, anything he writes that is grounded in fact is very well written. Um, whereas once he gets into his character pieces, his action, the writing is noticeably different. And I think that when he gets criticized for his writing, um, primarily it's the writing of, of, an, of a character action or, or a character scene. That um, is used as an example. So, I've actually prepared an example of of those two pretty close together, just a couple of paragraphs apart, um, which is what kind of at first brought this is, you know, not even twenty percent into the book, and it and it came to my attention then, uh, and and I think it's a really good example. So, <clears throat> I'm going to read first the historical slash you know uh, grounded in reality part, which is. While most of the city's perimeter walls were destroyed centuries ago, the Porta Romana still exists, and to this day, traffic enters the city by funneling through deep-arched tunnels in the colossal fortification. Not bad, right? No,
1: that's pretty... That's Yeah, there's there's nothing
0: wrong with that. Nothing wrong no, with that. I mean, it's good, yeah. Two paragraphs later. This is a interaction uh, or uh, some sort of action that involves Langdon and uh, the doctor Sienna Brooks. This morning, several hundred yards short of the gateway, Sienna had screeched to a stop and was now pointing an alarm. On the back of the trike, Langdon looked ahead and immediately shared her appreh- apprehension. I mean, like, yeah. it's... it's, it c- You could easily mistake that for being an entirely different author.
1: Yeah, and I was... um he does he gets he gets nailed for his prose a lot and i think that's you're right when it comes to human interaction this
0: guy's apparently never met a person (laughs) dude can't write characters and i mean like i mean uh, maybe i don't know much about dan brown the person but maybe you know uh historically his writing was grounded in you know uh research or you know writing historical accounts of stuff or you know doing something like that and then like the act of transferring that over to writing about, you know, characters and, and action and stuff like that. Just, you know, he can't do it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess the question is, uh, is his terrible character writing, um, too much to, to endure for the overall enjoyment of a book?
1: Um, I mean that's a personal choice. I mean, uh, you to know, throw away my my, you know, rating here, but yeah, I'm going to read another Robert Langdon book cuz I find the other stuff is is worth it. And, yeah. and when I say that throughout the course of his books, like I said Angels and Demons, fascinating stuff. You got the the law, the lost law symbol Freemasonry and Fringe Science. I've read a lot of stuff on Freemasonry so a lot of that wasn't a surprise but some of the Fringe Science that that he analyzed in that that you can research and find out that people are doing these experiments absolutely fascinating. I couldn't tell you anything about the story for the Lost Symbol. Not one thing. I couldn't remember at all but I remember some of the (laughs) stuff I read in there that he addressed and that's what I said before about concept versus story his concepts typically speaking in the first three Robert Langdon books were really 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 good we got to this book. This book scared the hell out of me. Yeah. Conceptually speaking. And and I don't think we're really giving anything away because it comes up pretty quickly in the book. But the, the concept here is that the world is heading towards, well, we're overpopulated already. And it's heading, you know, it's an extinction event if we continue to populate the world that we do. And the, the evil, mad scientist, <laughs> super villain, um, you know, his, his plot is, is, you know, is going to be is going to make that change. It's going to be like an apocalyptic event. Yep. And, you know, and thinking about not that somebody would try to, you know, kill off half the people or, or whatever, but just the fact that, and we, none of us, even if you're listening, you're going to see this in our lifetime, but, you know, 100, 200 years from now, it can all turn to chaos where we turn on one another because there's, you know, whatever it would be that would cause that, 10 billion people, 12 billion, I don't, I don't know what the exact number is. But it's coming, and that's a really, really scary thought. It's not a new thought. It's not something Dan Brown came up with, but it's scientific fact. And, you know, we don't think about this idea. And I get into these little ruts when, you know, I read this in Ishmael. You know, I mean, years ago I watched documentaries on it, and, you know, it always scares the hell out of me because we turn a blind eye to it because we do a book review podcast. We'd rather watch reality TV, but... Getting into the heart of this book, that's what it's about, and it's the question of, and and it's one of the quotes I have in here is, you know, if you could flip a switch and kill half the people in the world to ensure that mankind, you know, went on, you know, would you do it? Yeah, and you know, everyone says no, 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 I wouldn't. Well, that's the problem is if nobody does it, it, it everyone's gone, and it's not going to be our generation or the one after us. But yeah, three, four generations from now, that's going to happen. And conceptually speaking, that was really, really scary to me. And that that's probably what kept me more involved in this book than anything else.
0: All right. I got two responses to that. Uh, first of all, clever bit of foreshadowing with that question, if you think about it, the question that was asked about the mm-hmm. flipping the switch. Uh, second response is, if James Patterson taught us anything, it's that we're never going to get to the point of overpopulation, because before that happens... We will have driven enough cars that animals will freak out, have a dog orgy, and start killing us.
1: Thank you for your thank you for your insight <laughs> into that whole subject.
0: <laughs> so, don't worry, Patterson's got us covered. And an, an orangutan with a red hat on is going to incite dog orgies and make the animals of the world attack us before we get overpopulated. Exactly. Yeah.
1: But concept concept versus story. So what do you think? So the big concept here is, and, you know, again, you know we give it away a little bit, but Evil Genius uses Dante's Inferno to plot the, the, the demise of, you know, a good portion of the world. Good concept, right? Uh, yeah, incredible, yeah. yeah. Story-wise, um, I actually think, and this could just be because I read it last week, um, I think story-wise, though, this might be the stronger story even though i think that the concepts in the other books were more interesting kind of like this had like one really big concept that was interesting and once in a while they threw you a small tidbit of something where i went oh this is kind of neat i didn't know this um, the previous three books i found to be throughout like you know i'd flip a page and be like wow i'm really impressed by this little piece of information and turn another page and go wow i didn't know that that's kind of cool trivia or whatever so this one had like a bigger concept but i think story wise this might have been better than the than the previous three like the actual what they're yes. doing and what they, you know, the hoops they go through.
0: Yeah, I think that um, it managed to be a story that we could identify with more on a personal level, I think, than the other stories. And, and granted, um, I am not as as close to the other stories as I read them a long time ago. But yeah, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that uh, in a, in, a, in a book like Angels and Demons, where it's kind of, an overall thought of science versus religion. uh, It doesn't affect me personally. So um, in this book, it's essentially this person is tackling an issue or the crazy evil person is tackling an issue or worried about an issue that is something that is personally inescapable by anybody that's living right now. So Mm -hmm. it's much more easy to uh, identify with it on a personal level. And so, yeah, I think the story gives a lot more buy-in because of that, and, and then you, you're much more along for the ride. So for sure, I agree with you. Uh,
1: the the other thing they brought up that is very specific to address in the kind of, I don't know, introduction, is this uh, this group whose name eludes me now, and I don't feel like looking for it. But basically, there is a group uh, in this book that is paid to, to do various things, and and they're never really specific about it. We find out through the course of the book what they did for this character, but it's kind of like this group that wealthy people can hire to hide them away or to make some type of event happen, which he swears in the beginning of this book exists by a different name, and that they have offices in like seven countries in the world. So it's the kind of stuff that I find fascinating about Dan Brown is that that's the type of thing he addresses, and that even though the story is completely fictional... Um, nobody was trying to release any type of, you know, bubonic plague or anything, um, you know, in reality. But that all those other things are true, and that's what I think makes his books interesting—not just to me, but to the to the masses, to the you know, the hundreds of thousands of people that that buy them.
0: Yeah, let's be honest. No one's reading Da Vinci Code because they want to read about um, a professor from Harvard who likes tweed jackets and who women think that uh, he ends up being more sexy than they thought he would be.
1: Yeah, I can't even imagine anybody, if they really sat down and thought about it, finds Robert Langdon likable. No, he's kind of a douchebag. I mean, I, I was, I was just, I was going to go a different direction. I was going to say it's he's just there. He, he's a fixture. <laughs> it, it's you know, he's a necessity for the book. I don't think I don't hate him, but you know, think about it, I don't really like him. And I don't think anybody really likes him. He's just, just he's he, like through, he's, just the eyes we're seeing these facts through.
0: Almost he's our excuse for seeing a puzzle. Basically. Yeah. Yep, pretty much. Yeah. So yep.
1: anything else you want to talk about story wise? There's so much I could talk about in a spoiler episode <laughs> of this. I, I could probably talk about this book for an hour and some yeah. of the things that, that go on in it. And um, I will say this, if if you were to start reading it, which I I imagine the core audience of this of this show will not read this and I'll probably catch a lot of flack for, for even, you know, suggesting they do. Um, the first half's a little slow, but I think the second half really picks up and, and gets Really interesting
0: and I gotta say it picked up some some stars in the in the second half for me. Ooh, multiple stars. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know anything story wise, but I do have some um, nuts and bolts stuff to talk about if you want. Sure. Nuts and bolts, all right. Um it may just be that due to my my fanboyism, I notice this more than others. But did you notice that it was essentially like in certain parts of a book, like a very, very overt iPhone commercial? Yeah. Yes. I oh did. my God! The one part, there's one part in the book where, uh, of course, Langdon's in another country and he doesn't have his phone, but he needs to get on the internet. I think that's another thing we could add to the list of, you know, things that happen in a, in a in a Robert Langdon book. Uh, so he approaches a woman who's on an iPhone, and um, I have to give him credit overall. It wasn't like that Anne Rice book, The Wolf Gift, where like, I mean, everybody, you know, I mean, like. You know what I'm saying? Everybody. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, she was to the point where she was like, you know, they walk past someone on the street and she could tell by like the outline in their pocket that they were <laughs> that they were carrying an iPhone. Like <laughs> it was so beside the point. Um, but in this, I mean, there, there it was a few mentions, nothing overt, nothing too crazy. But there's this one scene. And even I was like, wow, this is a little bit much um, where he goes. He approaches a woman in church because he needs to look something up. Uh, he needs to look up part of. The, uh, one of the cantos of Dante's Inferno to get to specific words or whatever. So he approaches this woman asks, asks, uh, first of all, he acknowledges she has an iPhone and then she's very excited uh, that, you know, she's very happy with her iPhone and how much it does for her. And I'm like, all right, this is a commercial. Um, and then it goes on to where she's kind of hesitant to give him the phone, but then she does because she wants to help him out because she kind of explains why he needs it. And then he starts using the phone, and he uses a feature where you basically can speak out something, and then it does stuff for you, kind of like Siri, you know? It's basically he uses Siri without overtly saying Siri, you know, like that type of thing. And the woman is astonished, and then, like, there's a whole part about how she never even knew that feature existed on the iPhone, and I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Why is this necessary? Right? Am I right about that? Yeah. It was like yeah, a. It was a sorry. total commercial. It was weird. I, I actually wonder to
1: myself if there are uh, paid product endorsements, like in, in movies. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if anybody's going to get paid to mention something in their book, it's going to be Dan Brown.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I don't know if there's such a thing exists. But like, if not, he's doing it for free because like it was just so it was so specific and like. It just got to me. I'm hoping, did you kind of feel the same way when you read that part?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out, like, uh, maybe are a lot of his readers older and really wouldn't, like, he would have to kind of
0: explain. Oh, man, I'll tell you what happened. Dan Brown Mm -hmm. eventually, at some point, got an iPhone, and someone showed him that he could do that, and he was so blown away by it that he wanted to blow away the rest of the world. Yeah, the rest of the world already knows, though. That's the... Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's... Yeah. Um, so that that was just like one thing that I I felt it was necessary to point out because like even though product placement is not something that happens heavily throughout this book, uh, even with the iPhone showing up a couple times, and nothing near as overt as what Anne Rice was doing in her book, which is just absurd, this particular scene was so over the top that I would be I surprised if it wasn't product placement that was actually somehow endorsed. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Can, can I share a couple of the cool, fun facts that I came across that I didn't know, just like kind of statistical yeah. and stuff? So um, I'm going to read this to you from here. In 19- So based on the fact that Robert Langdon, I'm sorry, the Dan Brown and his Robert Langdon books says everything you read in here, the science, the this, the that, is fact. This line. In 1947, the U.S. Air Force manufactured an elaborate UFO UFO hoax to divert attention from a classified plane crash in Roswell, New Mexico. I, I'm I'm part conspiracy theorist at heart, <laughs> and you know it never. I don't know. I'm sure that it's not the first time that someone has said that, but that really affected me because Dan Brown says the stuff in his
0: books are are true. And as much as he can know what what's true and not, I guess. Well, yeah.
1: Well, and as I said, I mean, it's it's you have to, you know. One of the problems that people had with the Da Vinci Code was that um, one of the primary documents that he cited was believed or maybe even proven to have been a hoax, mm. which then, of course, throws off a bunch of other stuff. But he is referencing a document that at least at some point someone thought was believable. The other one I found that was kind of interesting, So I just have a few of them as I'm flipping through, I, I don't really have quotes. There's really not a lot of right. real quote, quotable stuff. I have kind of notes in here. Was that... Um, um, half of uh, pregnancies are unplanned. It's big. That is big. It's much bigger than <laughs> I would have thought. Um. Oh, yeah, and he mentioned Turkish delights, which I think are absolutely awesome. I don't know what that is. Oh, it's a, well, it's a Turkish confection. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. I'll, you know what, next time I have some, I'll make sure I set some aside for you because I, I have
0: Turkish delights. I've had Turkish patient. coffee. It is totally not the same thing. I know, but I've had it. <laughs> I actually have the uh, the proper uh, pot for making Turkish coffee. I have one.
1: Here's my problem with, with Turkish coffee. Maybe Dan Brown can um, address this in a book. I always get the biggest coffee possible. Uh-huh. And Turkish coffee is like, you know, it's like, you know, when you get like two fingers of whiskey. That's what you get for Turkish coffee. Oh, and I it's mean. It's totally just yeah. not enough coffee.
0: Wow, dude. All right. Well, that's fair. All right. So a little bit of other nuts and bolts stuff. Um, one thing actually in this book actually kind of vindicates Richard Thomas. Uh, if you'll remember, if you happen to listen to our review of his book, Staring into the Abyss, there was a quote in which uh, the, I don't remember the exact situation, but he uses the word distance and distant uh, within the same sentence. sentence. And it was just, uh it was bad work. But anyway, long story short without actually reading the quote I have in here, I found the exact same thing. There was well not the exact same line, that would be really weird. But um <laughs> uh the word distant and distance in uh in the same sentence uh, again. And then <laughs> I was uh, when I was cutting uh, the episode, I thought it was hilarious that I said that distant was ironically too close to the mm-hmm. word distance. Um but then later on, even better, there's another line where uh basically the line the sentence goes um he finally vaulted over the final guardrail and like final and finally were so close together so uh don't worry richard thomas you can still sell 45 million copies of something if you're putting distant and distance close together speaking of
1: how creepy it would have been if it was the exact same line (laughs) um would you like to share this other little tidbit about how uh Maybe just maybe Dan Brown stole a little bit from uh, from Book Podcast.
0: He might have. There's uh, there's I have to imagine that either he is a clever thief, um, or or this is a, a phrase that's commonly used. But at one point he describes rain in in the book, and he said the rain fell in sheets, or the rain was falling in sheets, which is uh, it was the opening. It was the beginning of a, of a sentence which started either a paragraph or a full chapter. And um, one of your hosts for this podcast has written a short story that starts with that exact uh, sentiment, rain falling in sheets. Mm-hmm. Now, now tell them about the other creepy thing. All right, yeah. Oh, yeah, the other creepy thing. All right, so I'm going to read the sentence, uh, which is creepy enough, and then you'll understand why it's eerie. The, the 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 correlation between uh the two so here's a line from inferno neither langdon nor sienna said a word as they stood side by side gazing down at the craggy face of dante Alighieri. is that how you'd say it mm-hmm. I hey, believe so, yeah. got that right hey uh still sealed in his ziploc bag as if he'd been suffocated so part of this uh part of this book includes um a face a mask that was like a, a cast of the face of Dante and that's what that's referring to now bear in mind this book just came out and we just read it in the last week I'm going to read you a tweet which is an actual uh, quote from a conversation we had March 9th of 2013 so months before we got our hands on this book Actually, the TSA recently changed their rules. It's okay to bring a human face onto your plane as long as it's in a one-quart bag. How crazy Maybe, is that? Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you the real Dan Brown. Boom. Booked podcast. Yeah. We're really good at writing history, not that good at writing characters. <laughs> yeah, no kidding.
1: Yeah, that is a little... When I, I, I didn't think about that when I read it because I'd already read that part when you sent me that book when you sent the tweet... Like, I, yeah.
0: How weird is yeah. that, dude? Like, how, what are really the chances weird. that, like, within months of, of reading the book, we would have had said something about keeping a face in a bag? Like, it doesn't even make sense. <laughs>
1: maybe we should analyze the root cause of the problem is sometimes you say things that don't make sense. Yeah, well, <laughs> you and Dan Brown. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, or. Or Dan Brown has been listening to this show for much, much longer than we uh, suspected. Yeah,
0: maybe he's got David James Keaton syndrome where he finishes the book, but then he hears something and he needs to incorporate it. That's possible. Yeah, We're going to go with that. That's what it is. Uh, uh, you ready to wrap this up? We've been talking about this book for a long time. Indeed we have. Yes, I am ready to wrap it up. Alright, yeah, I think I'll skip quotes too because um, I, I, people don't go to... Um, go to Dan Brown books really for the beautiful prose. No, they don't. <laughs> you want to, I'll, I'll kick it off. Okay. All right. So having read several Dan, couple Dan Brown books in the past, I knew what I was in for. Robert Langdon's stories are somewhat formulaic. I read out the list earlier of what I, I thought I could reasonably expect. And pretty much every aspect was hit on. Um, it's going to be some sort of conspiracy that involves symbols that he has to kind of put the piece piece of puzzle together. It's going to happen over 24 to 36 hours. It's always very fast. Um, and it's going to be something that's like, like Livius emphasized the, the concept, the central conceit of what's going on is, is so fascinating that there's so much room to forgive, um, his poor character development and his, I guess, characterizations in general. Um, so i'll probably seem much more forgiving of this book than the average person the average kind of booky snob might uh just because i knew what i was in for and i pretty much got that uh it's definitely a robert langdon book with the added kind of bonus of it being something that we could much we could identify with on a much more personal basis so Um, you know sometimes I don't really I was raised atheist so I don't give a damn a lot about religion beyond the fact that a lot of it is very interesting and how much it it builds into our history so like the other books while I thought they were fascinating didn't really resonate with me so personally as this one did Um, all that being said and with as much respect to the other books that we've reviewed and given ratings to in the past I'm going to leave this one at two and a half stars because overall I pretty much liked it but um, you know there's definitely much better stuff I've read throughout the year
1: yeah Robert
0: Langdon Um,
1: my expectations were kind of a great concept uh, probably a little more evenly distributed throughout the course of the book than this one and I think a lot of that has to do with the kind of manufactured mystery versus the true I'm doing the quotes that nobody (laughs) can see ancient mystery that, that his previous books um, brought. So, f- through the first half of this book, I was kind of disappointed. The big concept scared the shit out of me, but, like, once you're past that concept, you know, I mean, it's brought up throughout, and there's there's things that are, that are talked about. Um, you know, it's, it's a one-shot deal. Like, here's this concept. But getting into the second half of the book and even the last third of the book, it really, really turned around for me because something I got something I never felt I got from a Robert Langdon story before was a good story where I was actually involved in the actions of the characters. I wanted to know what was happening, not just from the solve the mystery and give me the big reveal behind a Michelangelo painting, which would have been my expectation, you know, two books ago or, or whatever, but this time I actually wanted to know what's where's robert going what's sienna doing you know and these other characters to really kind of find out what the motivations for some of these people were and i would have to say that he has become a better storyteller um over the course of these four books at least as indicated by the at least the second half of of inferno um wasn't quite as impressed with all the little tidbits of information that that i really enjoyed from his previous three books um yeah, the prose sucks. I mean, that's the you know, overall, you know, like Rob mentioned, you know, there are good parts and there are bad parts. Of course, it's so hard to remember the good parts, and all we'll ever remember is you know, his really kind of uh, it, it's almost like he's socially inept when you read these. Like his character's uncomfortable, but I don't think Robert Langdon isn't uncomfortable. it's It's that Dan Brown can't write him in a comfortable way when he's around other people <laughs> or any type of interaction. Um, but still, overall, I, I don't get the immediate disdain. And part of it is this, and, I, and I'll call out anybody who does this. Anybody who talks shit about a Dan Brown book that hasn't read one really has no place to. I've said this before about Stephanie Meyer. Um, the, oh, what's what's the Harry Potter lady's name? J.K. Rowling. Wow. J.K. Rowling. <laughs> okay, I've never read any J.K. Rowling, and that's why I don't talk crap about it. I don't think it's my thing, but I'm not going to call her out. It's the same thing with James Patterson. We reviewed a book. We figured out it was crap. Um, I, you know, I, I don't get it. Uh, the guy writes books that are super, super well-researched, p- p- quite possibly, with the exception of, uh, I, don't know, I don't remember what it's called, In the Garden of Beasts? Is that it? Yes. Yeah, other than that, probably the best research book we've we've reviewed on this show, and you know, there's some merit there. Um, was it really great? No. Was it terrible? No, not at all. I mean, like I said, I was actually really into it through the second half. Um, but overall, from my expectations of a Robert Langdon story, I really wanted to be blown away by the concept,
0: you know, the, the concept throughout the book. So for that, uh, I'm gonna go with three and a half stars. Woo, Wow. So. so if anybody's doing the math on that one, that's six overall averaged out, that's a three star. Three star rating for a Dan Brown book. wasn't expecting that. God, damn it, I gotta tell you if
1: either one of his other three books, would have, and I didn't. Well, you know what? Honestly, the Lost Symbol may be in my Goodreads because I might have been doing Goodreads when I read that. I know the other two are too old. Um, if either one of those carried the second half of this story, I would have. I'd call it a five-star book because wow. it would have been a perfect mix wow. of, right. of story and concept. With, eh, some prose that's lacking, but you know what? It's not always about. You want know beautiful writing? Go read poetry. Sometimes it's about the story.
0: If you want real beautiful writing, read the posts that I I write for this website for the podcast on the website. Exactly.
2: <laughs> exactly. So.
0: All right. There it is. That's our our first Dan Brown big time Dan Brown book review. You'll read another Robert Langdon book, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of those things. It's like uh it's it's kind of uh, you know, guilty pleasure, you know. Someone on Facebook,
1: and I'm only um, not going to credit this person because I had no idea who they are, but I saw them comment on someone else's you know, Facebook post about Dan Brown and said that uh, one of the things they thought was great about Dan Brown is that uh, his story, and, and because they're widely read, but his concepts make people talk about issues, which I, I mm-hmm. thought was, was, I've never looked at it that way, but you know what, how many people were talking about Christianity and its origins and its beliefs after the Da Vinci Code... How many people do you think, if this goes as big as the lost symbol or whatever, will start talking about overpopulation?
0: Yeah, but how many of them will stop boning? None of them, but people will talk about
1: it, and at least there might be an awareness that this is a thing. Now, is anyone going to do anything about it? No, probably not. But at least it could bring something that's a very, very serious issue to the forefront of you know the average person's mind, At least, at least when the Tom Hanks movie comes
0: out. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, so if you want to talk about someone who's really good at getting people to talk about issues and sharing um, history and facts in a very interesting way, I don't know if we have anybody better to talk about than uh, our own Skip Papersley.
1: Absolutely, and let's see what Skip has. say. Maybe he'll bring
2: up some issues we can talk about. Damn right, here we go. This is Book News. I'm Skip Papersley. Now for the news. Somehow thinking the 20s to be the most important time in a reader's life, many lists have been made of books that you should read to sculpt you into a decent human being, like The Sun Also Rises, The Bell Jar, and On the Road. Flavor Wire was kind enough this week to produce a list of 15 books you should not read in your 20s. On the list is Atlas Shrugged, Catcher in the Rye, and On the Road. The reasons given for most of these books is that you'll be too old and the books aren't good. Given that, Book News has come up with a list of five books you might want to consider reading sometime, eventually, or maybe not. On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Read it just so you know what people are talking about all the time since they won't shut up about this one. The Bible by, well, a lot of people. Sometimes you're looking for answers and I hear this has some, even if it's just the correct spelling of Methuselah. Green Eggs and Ham by Dr. Seuss, or Soyce. This is a book about being a stubborn asshole that thinks they know everything. Perfect for someone in their teens, twenties, or thirties. Just don't get to the end. The Solitary Vice Against Reading by Makita Bratman. Because everyone needs to do the thing they're told not to do in order to find out why they're not supposed to do it. Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn is perhaps the greatest book in all of history, and must be read immediately by all people. Finally, the New York Times bestsellers Sellers and Fiction Recap. Coming in at number 5 is NOS 4A2 by Joe Hill and I have no idea what this is. I can't tell you what number 4 is this week. It's Jeffrey Archer's Best Kept Secret. Nora Roberts stumbles down to number 3 with Whiskey Beach. David Baldacci thinks he's got a hit with The Hit at number 2. Finally, Big Jimmy Patterson swings for the fences with The Twelfth of Never at number 1. This has been Book News... I'm Skip Papersley, signing off.
1: Well, that couldn't have worked out more opportunely. Um, Rob, did you ever read
0: Atlas Shrugged? I did not, and I'll tell you why really quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, A, it's like 7,000 pages. pages, Yeah. (laughs) B, I had a friend who read it when I was uh, in, in my early 20s. And he explained in great detail what the book was about. It's the same reason I never watched A Clockwork Orange*. Someone gave me such a detailed retelling of what the book was about in the movie. Talking about *Clockwork Orange*, um, mm-hmm. that I felt like it wasn't necessary for me to to go into it.
1: Oh, that's such a shame. Especially, clock- I love *Clockwork Orange*. I, and for not being much of a movie guy, you know, *Clockwork Orange*. I've seen it probably a dozen times. Yeah. Um, Atlas shrugged. I've never under so I read *Atlas Shrugged* by the way, in like a week, like all 1,100 pages. Oh,
0: Mr. Braggy! No,
1: I was totally locked in that book. My issue, so here's the thing. Before I started, before social media, let's say, because I read this probably 12, 14 years ago, when, you know, at best you met somebody that read it and you could talk to them a little bit about it. Um, you know, I... I thought it was a really great book. I still think it's a really great book. I always thought it was a little long-winded, and if there was an abbreviated version that cut out about 350 pages, that they should probably teach that book in schools. Over the last couple of years, I have noticed this this just just backlash against Ayn Rand for Atlas Shrugged, and I just don't get it. I will say that I do think that most of that, again, kind of touching on what I said about Dan Brown, is coming from people who never even cracked the spine on it. And just have some some idea of something they don't like about Ayn Rand. But I, I'm very curious if someone can explain to me what exactly she did that was so bad. And Atlas shrugged.
0: Oh, I never read it, so I can't. I can't no, go to no. you on that. L- but listen, like, listener challenge. Wasn't it? Isn't it like a? Isn't it? I guess my understanding, and this is me really mm-hmm. not paying attention to politics much lately. But like, uh, like the whole, you know, like wasn't she very against the idea of public aid and public assistance and stuff like that? Yeah. Which is what almost everybody's
1: against, right? We all talk about welfare and how we hate welfare and people got to get off the welfare. And basically it, it's not, I, I guess that that's one way to look at it. Um, I, I believe objectivism is the, the actual term for her beliefs, but you know, her books and, and I've read, uh, three of her books, I guess three of her, I think she has four novels and I read three of them. Um, they basically deal with just not lowering your own self-worth for the benefit of others, which, I don't know, I thought it kind of a cool concept, you know, that people shouldn't be able to sponge off what you do or steal your ideas. So in, in Atlas Shrugged, a lot of that is about stealing other people's concepts or the government forcing you to share your great invention with those you know, companies that are less fortunate than you. Like, how bad would that suck if we had to give our good content to another podcast?
0: Wait a minute. So, like, you're saying Dan Brown using our concepts... <laughs> yes, Or that he shouldn't be profiting off of that. Yes, that son exactly. of a bitch. He needs to read yeah. Atlas Shrugged. Yeah. Um, I will cool. say, here's what it is, though. It's like, mm-hmm. essentially, what I'm trying to say is that, like, um, it's not something that's universally embraced. Other, you know, it's 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 a it's a philosophy that's it's a little bit polarizing because it's something that uh, the conservatives can embrace much more readily than the liberals who liberals tend to, uh, you know, think that there are people who need assistance in the world. And so to, to just say that, like, you know, to, to, you know, you know what I'm saying? You know Mm -hmm. what I'm getting at? No, no. I, and I do. And
1: I'm the only thing I'm going to say to that is that in the books that I've read of hers, it's never like the little guy that's being beaten down by this. Right. So I, I, metaphorically, she might've been referring to everybody possibly.
0: Well, And then I guess the problem is as much as um, you're challenging people who have read it to to explain it to you uh, and saying that, you know, people who haven't read it shouldn't talk about it. I think that conservatives uh, who have had kind of a paraphrased, you know, idea of what she was talking about misconstrue what she was saying or uh, misinterpret the message to to, to, they kind of rewrite the message to what to serve them. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. My next thought is going to be okay. So if you've misconstrued what Ayn Rand <laughs> was trying to say, just let
1: me know that. Just tell me you misconstrued <laughs> it. And I'm totally cool with it. I liked Ayn Rand. I liked her concepts in her book. um Yeah, in her books. And I just, you know, and just hearing Skip mention it, uh, just I immediately went back to that kind of like, I don't want to say defensive because whatever mm-hmm. people like what they like. Some people right. listen to hip hop. You know, who am I to judge?
0: I'll, I'll so, tell you what. Um, to, to go in kind of a similar direction um, but with a different book that Skip mentioned. I want people to defend On the Road by Jack Kerouac because I think Jack Kerouac is a terrible writer and uh, I don't know why he's so universally embraced. So if anybody wants to give me an informed opinion about why Jack Kerouac is so great, I would love to hear that as well. Dude, that's the
1: guy with the movie, right? With the kid in the post-apocalypse?
0: <laughs> that's what Cormac McCart wait what are you talking yeah, about it's on top the road by Cormac McCartney
1: out there I've never read a Jack Kerrack I have no idea none yeah well I, I wrote a book called yeah. down the road mostly because I heard it from Skip Papers. Like, I actually knew that before Skip <laughs> but I have no idea even what it's about perhaps it's about a trip somewhere
0: uh, yeah well speaking like of trips stuff. what's uh what's coming up next Livius? I was just going to say like our
1: trip. We took another booked road trip, a short one this time, a really fast one because we broke 70 different laws to get to Chicago on time for a a reading. Sunday Salon Chicago reading Um, last night from when we're recording this is when we were there. Um, That's going to be our next two episodes. So for those of you who heard readings before, we're going to split it up so it's not, you know, so it's not like an hour and 10 minute episode like this one is. Or even shorter bursts of uh, of some different writers, including including, it's like Rob Roberge month around here, including Rob Roberge. Yep, it's
0: like we had the Wendig Nation when we did like a whole Chuck Wendig month.
1: Yep. So All right, I'm very excited um, to bring you guys that. I'm very excited to listen to those stories again for readers, um, for great uh, readings. I was going to say stories, but a couple of them are just excerpts um, from books, including
0: including one of our favorite parts from uh, the cost of living that's right um and and before we continue talking about the stuff that's coming up i need to livius you had a couple of like uh non-podcast related stories uh, uh that you talked about and um i have one that i'd like to talk about as well uh you were talking about how we broke like 70 different traffic laws to get to the reading on time which reminded me of a conversation i was having recently with my brother uh so in the past my brother uh, has, you know, from time to time had some traffic violations that led to some, you know, kind of more formal interactions with police, which involved handcuffs and stuff like that. So nothing big, but there's this and this is so long ago. This is like a lifetime ago, practically. But uh, me and my brother were talking about this one time where uh, for whatever reason he ended up, uh, he, they were going to take him to the station and uh, it was like two in the morning. He calls me up. The police officer was nice enough to let him use his cell phone uh, while he was, you know, in the back of the police car. So my brother calls me up and this is like a town away from where I live at the time. And he explains the situation. He's like, you just got to come pick me up. You know, it's going to cost whatever for the ticket. Um, and I'm pissed. I'm just, I just, I was ready. I had to work in the morning. I was like, already asleep. Um, so I get up and I race over to the, the police station. Turns out I got there before he did with a police officer. <laughs> and I walk in and I'm all pissed off. And, and I talk to the woman that's that's in the, who, the officer that's, you know, at the front desk or whatever. And I'm like, I'm here to see so-and-so. I'm here to pick him up or whatever. And she says, wow, you got here fast. He's not even here yet. I was like, yeah, well, I was speeding the whole way. Nice. She laughed because it was funny, but I was actually speeding the whole way, so that's my little story. I like your little stories, Rob. Have I, ever told right. you that? <laughs> I yeah. gotta, I gotta get back uh, to, to my normal. I gotta re- regain my crown because you've been taking it away. Recently. I'm gonna,
1: I'm gonna back off on the stories. I think that's your portion of the podcast. <laughs> I think that's all you. But our next episode, do you know what else makes so? Next episode, you're gonna be hearing Sarah Gerkensmeyer and Russ Bradbird, which were the first two readers at sunday salon chicago mm-hmm. um, but you know what else is special about that episode
0: remind me it's episode 150 boom that's huge
1: you know so every three weeks we have we have some kind of milestone episode it's like all the time
0: yeah. it's like well, our one-year
1: anniversary it's like our 100th episode do your yeah. 150
0: yeah hey you know next week is memorial day so you know we're gonna be recording something oh do you want to do you want
1: to tell people what we're going to be recording
0: yeah i'm actually really excited about it i pushed for this since uh um i got to go to the reading where he read part of it uh we're going to be reviewing dan o'shea's book penance his first full-length novel
1: can i tell you that he's already got so i'm like 42 pages in and if stars were to build throughout the course of a book he's already at one star Ooh, and 42 pages in yeah he's it's totally set in chicago like i know exactly where chapter one takes place (laughs) i started reading it today
0: well based on that wait how many stars does he have so far one one yeah he'd have 10 stars by the end of this book he could it's about 10 percent of the book
1: we'll we'll see which way it goes
0: (laughs) all right lots of cool stuff coming up i guess is what we're we're trying to tell you guys
1: indeed
0: um so come back soon
1: not in a week but soon in a couple of days for our um Our rebroadcast so to speak of sunday salon chicago um featuring uh, next episode will be russ bradbird and sarah gerkensmeyer until then i'm olivia snedden
0: and i'm rob olson keep reading